started when, after I visited artists in their studios over a few years, and look at, as a painter, several new paintings, or a sculptor, work on a pedestal. But then often the artist would say, let me show you something. I want to get out my drawings for the project I really want to do. And I found that most artists had a dream project that didn't fit in to the conventional art business structures. So I decided, why not open a project space where we can give artists a platform to realize these dream projects that might not be very commercial. And so that is how Dutch projects began. And sometimes the project was a performance. One project was so the artist walking naked down Canal Street. The other, other infamous project, Oleg Kulik, living in the gallery as a dog for two weeks. What I found is that if the art is inspiring, somebody is going to try to find a way to get involved and maybe actually buy it. So most of our radical projects actually sold. And it gradually became an economically viable model. So it was called projects because it was about projects rather than conventional gallery representation. And you've even compared it to kind of almost like an institute of contemporary art or like a Kunsthalle where it's like a rotating exhibition where it's not like you're dealing with discrete works on the wall, but, but kind of most of them were installations. Yes, and a number of them went out into the street, out into the city. Right. Um, can you talk a little bit about just, you know, you've had to navigate the whole world of street art, graffiti art, urban art. How do you feel about all these labels, both of you? I mean, kind of, what do you use? Because um, I feel, I mean, I, I, having talked about this at various times, I feel uncomfortable with most of them. You talk about yourself as an urban artivist. No. <laughs> I think, I mean, it's an interesting question. When I started, I had no idea about that you could be an artist because graffiti, you would have been taken as a bandage. So I was yeah, a bandage, yeah. so you never think of, you know, being an artist. I never told my mother, one day I'm going to be an artist. You know, we had no artists in the family. It was not a term that we know that. So, uh, and, and I know that I could get arrested and I got arrested for doing graffiti. So it was, you know, it would never be a pass. But then when I found that camera, I was like, well, now I can be a photographer. And I was happy about that. But really quickly I realized that I was more excited about pasting those photos. So then, yes, I became a wallpaper guy, if you want. And then slowly I thought, okay, you know, they, they, they went through many things, but then I realized doing different projects like choreography or like films or sculpture is that, you know, artist is the, you know, is the most incredible thing ever. And I realized also the power of that world, wherever you go in the world, and you're not affiliated with anybody, not even an NGO, and you say I'm an artist, the people really open your, their door. It's like, it's like almost a, a sesame to go anywhere in the world, and it works. Jeffrey, can you talk a little bit about those terms? Or? So one of my missions for a long time has been to put, make the case in the art community that there's no such thing as a subcategory of street art that's not real art. And so I've always worked with artists who, their work on the street, 
without thinking that this is a separate category, that it is not somehow not as good or not as worthy of artists who do conventional paintings on canvas. So the word, the term street art became used 20 years ago to differentiate the work from graffiti that had a negative connotation. But then something complicated has happened. Street art became so popular that a number of, of artists came in onto the scene were more interested in branding and making money uh, than in putting out work for the public. So now someone can get their name out, uh, build a brand, and then work for Coca-Cola or Pepsi. And so there's this problem of the dilution of street art. So a number of the artists who have been put in that category are running away from it. So it, it reinforces more that it should all be about who is an innovative artist rather than a street artist and a real artist. No, I add something on yeah. uh, um, what Jeffrey said is uh, in London in 2008, so pretty early in, you know, I don't know, I must have been 24 or, or whatever, and I was invited to paste on the outside of the Tate model, which is, you know, wow, amazing. And there was five other artists and all shared the whole outside of the Tate model. And, uh, and then we said, you know, we signed the paper, wait, we're going to do it, and we go, we do it, and we, we're all really excited. And then I remember someone called me and said, oh my god, you're on the website of Nissan Qashqai. So, um, uh, Nissan being the brand of the car and Qashqai being the model of the SUV that we're doing. It's like, how is that possible? So I go there and then we see all the name of the five artists around the car. So then I, I call the creator and say, what's happening? How did we end up on this side? Oh no, big dog, don't worry, because the show is sponsored by Nissan Qashqai. And so, you know, and I was like, well, this is not possible. And so we talked between us, all the others, and we said, okay, we're all pulling out of the show. Sayonara, see you. <laughs> and then they were like, whoa, what? And I said, look, the museum is supposed to be the museum presents, the artist, ta 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 with the support of, okay, that's how it had been traditionally made, and a real thank you too. And now it was Nishan Kaskai presented the Fate Model and the artist, da da da, and you even end up sending a car. So we made a letter, all of us, that said, you know, we don't care about the show anymore, we want to be pulled out of all the sites and of the museum. And then they apologized and kept up the show and threw up Nissan Kaskai. But it shows you how you would thought that when you get to the Fate Model, that's the moment where you, okay, great. You know, like we're really here. Actually, that's why you need to walk the most to make sure whenever you know we walk on exhibition, that's where you need to check where the money is coming from, how it's going to be financed, where they going to put their logos. And when I'm on the show at the Louvre, you know, I remember the prisoner of the Louvre saying, "Okay, you're going to do walk on the pyramid," and he opened the door, and there was like 30 people lined up around the table from the conservator, the, the people, the fire department, security. A partnership, you know, the people in the sponsorship and stuff, and they all introduced themselves, how they would help. And as soon as the people from the partnership, you know, said, "Hey, we can't wait. It's really easy to finance because the museum don't have money." But and I said, "You know what? You can leave the room because I'm not. We have such a short room period of time. I don't want to be talking with, you know, whatever brand of clothes or whatever. That at the end, 
would want to use it for promotion. And it's really delicate, and, um, and, and it needs that same amount of work you put on the actual work into how to make the show, and I think it's as important. Well, touching on the Louvre, I mean, I, uh, there's, there's a great picture online of, of, of and you said for that, for that um, installation, everyone had to kind of stand in a, in a line. Close your eyes. There might be some holiday photos in there. I don't know. I don't remember. You know, up. We don't want to see that. Tack, 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 tack. Up, up. Now, growing. Up, up. Now, and maybe. No. Wow. Yes. Up right there. Almost. Well, look at it. You saw it, right? So yeah, so so supposedly, I mean, that point of view, if you see it from any other angle, it doesn't set up like that. But yeah, you know, that's that is a huge social media moment. And <laughs> and I was wondering, you know, social media, when you started out, there's no Facebook, there's no Instagram, but it's it seems like it's been a great thing for you, your work, for, for street, for art in the streets in general. Can you talk about kind of your use of social media, what it's meant to you. Jeffrey, can you talk a little bit about kind of how you see this kind of connection between street art and social media and what it like sort of benefits negative aspects if there are any? You know, the, the weird thing is that I got pretty late on social media, but in 2001 when I started doing my stuff in the street, I, I, um, I actually had a website right away and I made a website that's still the same name today, and I would paste, uh, I would put a photo a day. It's called the photo du jour, the daily photo. And I did that for years, years, and then replaced it by Instagram, but then posted on my website every day. But I had that kind of, of, of continuity. It was a way to share before social media. But when social media came, I saw the way of finally engaging more, because my website, and it's, we still have it, we had a map of the world where you could uh, you know, turn up and say, I'm ready to face whatever. And when you say that, it would show on the map. So suddenly you would see that in Bangladesh, there was 2,000 people just like ready. And you're like, wow, we should do a project there. That actually influenced on how I would go and do project. So, and you can still see that map, even if now people do it through social media. We had that for years before we started using uh, Instagram. And, and an idea like this actually came because um, when you, you know, of course, I never thought that I would ever do something while being alive at the Louvre, you know. So, when they told me I could do an installation, I literally had no idea because I looked at that building and that pyramid on my life, and, you know, but literally not fucking any probably, idea. Probably the best possible installation spot you could have at the <laughs> Yeah. So, but wait, I went and see, I went and hang on the square and look at people, and you know what people do when they come from around the world is they ride in front of the pyramid, they turn their back to it, and they take a selfie. And I was like, wow, we go, you know, we go and see the monuments that inspire the most just to photograph ourselves in front of it and turn our back to it. And so that's why I decided to make it disappear. And depending on where you walk, you see it completely appear, completely disappear, and, um, a lot of the projects, um, so there was only one point to take the photo, so you had to do a line and that would self-organize by people, where when you have to wait for an hour on the line, you actually do speak with other people. A lot of my projects are an excuse to create real interaction between people. And that's a really important part in what we do. And I can show you an example that actually have been built only for that. I'll go back, da, 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 da,
up right there. So you see that piece here was built, um, you know, on the Mexican side of uh, the wall. The, the, you know, and so that's the Mexican side. That side is the U.S. side. That was last September. That's exactly a piece that resumes on how I use at the same time social media, anonymity, and participation of people because I've never thought of pasting on that wall because it's see-through, so I can't paste on it. But you know, that wall being advertised on television every day because of, you know, of a certain president, I forgot his name. So I thought, wow, actually I never thought of you know of, of this wall before, but um, now that I'm doing installation with scaffolding, maybe we should go back. So we went and we took the road that you can see on the left side, on the US side, and I was looking for a spot on the Mexican side that I could install something. But not knowing any regulation at all, I don't know, you know, who controls this. So when we find a good spot that was not too far from a big city, so it was San Diego, that was actually close from a, a, a checkpoint that we, we could pass, you know, a custom border, we went on the other side, looked around, it looks like that didn't disturb anybody, that piece of land, because people were living a little bit around. So we went and, you know, we went and rented the bulldozer. I'm sure that's what everyone do when they don't know what to do. We rent a bulldozer and went and, like, dig the hole. And we started digging the hole, waiting for someone to say, excuse me, you know, can I see the papers? But believe it or not, no one did. And the border patrol keep passed. Uh, you know, they passed there, they, they never asked anybody anything. And we built that entire hole, and the neighbors would bring us water and say, oh, what are you guys doing? We're just, you know, just digging a hole. <laughs> so we made that, that, so it was flat. Then when that was done, we went and rented the Mexican company, uh, Scaffolding. And we told the guys, well, we want to build it, and we already prepared the land for you guys, but we actually want to build it. The location is right there. And, yeah, I know it looks like really close to the wall, but the war is, you know. I mean, it should be fine. <laughs> so they were like, okay, why not? They went and started installing the scaffolding. And the scaffolding is three, three times the size of the wall, you know? And so there's also helicopters flying by from the border patrol. I don't know who would actually, at some point, would say, guys, you cannot build like a building next to the wall, you know? <laughs> but believe it or not, no one said anything. So then we put the wood panel, and in one day, we pasted the image and then past the wall, I took off my hat and glasses, and so the border patrol guy, I mean the costume guy asked me, you know, where are you from, friend, what are we doing? You know, I was just doing tourism, great. Right? <laughs> <laughs> you know, what's your occupation, photography? And, um, and so he's like, you know, have a good day. And then I passed and put back my hat and glasses, went there, took that photo, posted it, and say, work in progress, because we were still finishing it and stuff. At that moment, I didn't even have the time to explain who was the real kid and the vision, that it went you know, through social media further than I could have imagined. But that day we left, and the next day I posted and I said, guys, actually, this is the point where you can go and see the piece. And it's gonna be there a couple of weeks, you know, if they don't shut us down, and you can go and see it. Now, one thing that I have with plan is that people came from, you know, all over, thousands of people, but on each side. Now what you do when you go and you go there to actually take a selfie or take a photo and say, I was here. And you see through the wall, someone from the other side who was actually doing the same thing. People pass their phones through the wall and say, do you mind taking a really good photo of me through the fence? And I take a really good photo of you through the fence. And then I started seeing those photos every day popping up on internet. 
like, wow, that's a cross. We never thought of that because normally you get arrested right away if you do that. But after two weeks, I was like, wow, if they didn't arrest anybody because we couldn't read any story of someone who said I had problems, it means that they must be shutting their eyes on it. So then after another week, so it was three weeks in, or, or, or three weeks and a half, we were almost, we had to take it down because we rented the scaffolding. So, you know, it was a moment that we could pay. So, of course, we had the idea on the Monday. We were like, wow, you know, every great art exhibition have an opening and have a closing. So we should do a closing, you know, and maybe make a lunch or something. So, but we got overconfident and that's, that's a good lesson. Not, don't get overconfident. And we sent the plan of the table to the border patrol. That would have been super nice till now. So we're like, let's ask them if they let us put our table because this is going to disturb the cows. Also from the border patrol that passed there. And they didn't reply. So we started preparing a table. We started building on the on the Mexican side. We built a big table in wood, photographed a woman who's a dreamer. And we started pasting. And then on the Friday, we received a letter that says, if we do this, they will arrest everybody, deport people, break every visa. And this, you know, would be a violation of like regulation or whatever. And then it was all lawyer stuff. I don't understand it. I'm French, so I said let's do it. So then <laughs> we went and we actually had nobody on the other side, and everybody was on the Mexican side. So the day before, I put it on social media. Hey guys, tomorrow is the last day to see the piece. And the funny thing, actually, that when I was taking photos with people at the entrance, there's teachers from the French um, school here that were in the plane with us and we told them, guys, we can't tell you what we're doing, but come and see the piece tomorrow at lunchtime. Where are you guys actually? They're somewhere here. There are three of them. Are you still there? They left, they were all. They're here. <laughs> and, uh, and they came to the lunch. Like, you know, not many people, like maybe 70 people who showed up around that moment or 80. As soon as there was an app, we passed them through the fence because of course, you know, I'm, I'm a little chicken, I was scared, I was stayed on the Mexican side, they wanted to get caught. So I just passed them the top and, and with the other side of the eye. And I said, yeah, can you align it? And then we send the drone and then... Oh, and then wow. Then we, thank you. This is not that many people, but I managed to make a great lunch where half of the music band was on one side, the other half of the same band were on the other half playing the same music. We were all sharing the same water. We were smuggling tacos through the wall so that people didn't brought food would have it. And for two hours, we almost forgot that there was a wall. And then suddenly an hour after, an hour and a half after, there's a, a border patrol that arrives, and he comes out of his car, he gets close to the wall, and you know, so I get close to the fence because you know, he can't get that I'm seen, but not that seen that he can get me through the wall. And then you know, um, we, we actually, there's a video and we actually share tea. And, uh, and he stayed there the whole day and talked with even the woman, the dreamer, that you know, was supposed to be arrested for just being there. And, and then I asked him if I could post that video, you see it online, and, uh, and he said, please do, because if all of them we don't start changing that, then who will? You know? And so it's really great to have done that. social media. I think I first saw it, there was an article in the New York Times about it when I first saw the, the first image. 
um, it's it's just incredible kind of that the kind of tool that that Instagram allows. You know, and but, but, yeah. you know, we tried actually one of the original plan was to try and get journalists to like cameras and stuff so that the border patrol wouldn't approach. And we couldn't because it's true. You would ask me on the Friday or in the week, it's like that was just an idea, but we didn't know if it would happen. Maybe it would have been killing the egg right at the beginning. And I'm always ready to take that because I don't see that as failure. Like in every project we do, whenever there's more risk of failure than success, that's where the project is interesting. That's why we are artists, that's why we need to try things that others don't. Because as artists, you're allowed to fail. What's the big deal? Who would have cared? You probably would never have heard about it, and it would have been a boring weekend for us, and that's it. Well, it's hard to like, you know, I couldn't tell all the big papers and TV, yes, it's sure, this is the time, so you can pack your car as well. It was completely, so everyone documented it like this, and, uh, and a few blogs came, and then the image was shared, and shared by the people. Jeffrey, from your perspective, I mean, how, how has social media changed what you do? Well, something like this, prior to Instagram and other social media, the only way something like this could exist in art is if the New York Times covered it, if Art Forum covered it, or if there was a whole endorsement system involving the museum. What's great now is an artist can be independent. An artist doesn't need this whole network of endorsements in order for art to be realized and to go out into the world. I mean, do you see do you see any flip side to that? Is there is there any flip side to kind of the the, the sort of excessive popularity of some things that are on Instagram? You know, the art world obviously it's there's a balance between too much exposure historically. And, and not enough. Sure, and that's something that the art discourse is going to have to deal with because there's a lot of the superficiality now. But I'm, I'm, I'm very confident that artists and people who curators will figure out a way to reassert the seriousness. So um, I want to open it up for questions, but I have uh, one last question for both of you, which is, um, you know, the worst question you get when you when you when you do a project is everyone's wondering what's next. So I want to pose that to, to both of you, Jeffrey. First, can you talk a little bit about the your projects or coming up uh, the gallery a little bit, and then Jr. Can you talk a little bit about what you're up to? Sure. Well, I think some of you know the story that. I didn't last very long at the Museum of Contemporary Art in Los Angeles. Uh, some people thought that shows were too popular. So I'm opening a gallery on my own. It'll be very ambitious, and I'll be able to do museum-level exhibitions without asking anyone's permission. And it's one of the reasons I love artists like JR and artists coming out of street culture, because they don't have to ask anyone's permission. They have an idea they believe in, they just do it. That's for me, that's very inspiring. You know, I remember um, um, that the question of uh, what's next always scared me. I'm like, you know, you just finished something and people ask me, what's next? And it used to bother me, and then I realized that because I never knew also what's next, you know. And, uh, but I actually love the fact that I don't know what's next. Because all those projects, you see, they sometimes they happen from the Wednesday to the Sunday. 
So, but recently I started working on a project that takes me a little more time than from the Wednesday to Tuesday. So let me see if I can go back to that all the way back. Okay. So you see the, that that's a mural that I've done about the neighborhood where I first. Um, oh yeah, I have to follow as well. It doesn't matter where I first. Uh, started. It's in the, the suburbs of Paris. It's called Clichy Montfermeil. That's why I did my first project. And I, I where I pasted uh, my friend holding his video camera like a weapon. Uh, I can't find you that image actually. It should be earlier. Boom, 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 boom. Oh, it should not actually. No, let's go back. It's, it's the other way, but it doesn't matter. It's, um, I went back to the neighborhood just last April and because I've been, you know, going there for 15 years, and the, the mayor at the time when I pasted the image of my friend holding his camera like a weapon sued me at the time. That's how actually I got to New York in 2004 because I escaped France for one year. I didn't want to pay the fine. But when I came back, the riot exploded. And if you remember the riots of 2005, they actually started in this neighborhood because the two kids that died. By being chased by the, the police that were 13 years old, actually hiding an electric box that was right by the photo I pasted. And so the image that you saw in the program of New York Times was cars burning and people, and on the background there was, you know, those images pasted. That was actually the first time my work had been shown, being the background of the largest riots we had in France since the French Revolution, because then those riots went all over France. So I've always been attached to the neighborhood, and they destroyed the buildings, and you know because that neighborhood was like a no-go zone. And um, and I went there in the inspiration of Diego Rivera and Orozco and great muralists like that, and photographed everybody at the same level, which means that everyone is in the same light, everyone is represented the same way. No one is more important than another. Oops, I see here the mayor who actually sued me. Who actually is still the mayor today, and is the and you know as he's in the mural, uh, he's right there with the white thing. Um, uh, the guy who's uh, you know in front of the fireman trying to stop the fire is the you know the guy who lost his brother that started those riots. The people who are talking all over there are people who are discussing about the whole reconstruction of that neighborhood. The guy that's showing a book to his friend is the guy who actually break, uh, 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 who went and. Um, and did the bank robbery in the bank that spent 25 years in jail, but still is part of that neighborhood. I was not looking for only the good people or the bad people, I was trying to represent everybody. And uh, and then we installed this at the Palais Tokyo in Paris, and it was an incredible day because uh, the French president wanted to see the inauguration, and, um, and he came, but his security asked him to be there at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, where the opening was a bit later. So when he got here, he saw that's part of the history of France now. No one can deny it, and you know what had happened in that neighborhood. And um, he said, "Where are the people?" And I said, "Well, Mr. President, you, you know, you asked that there be nobody when you come. They're only coming at around six. I said, "Well, I need to see this with the people represented." So he asked to stay, and so we got to chill for two hours and a half because people were late, of course. So you know, we chilled in the museum, like you know, check some out. You know, took a grenadine or whatever, and then came back there. Everyone came, and they were so excited to see themselves that they even forgot about the president. And so then he asked them, "Well, can you tell me who is who?" And people explained how they were presented, how it was mirroring their life, and you know what they've been through. And so he said, "Well, if you let me, and if the mayor, who was there also, 
you know, if, if you give a war for that piece in the in the neighborhood, I come and inaugurate it, which he did, and we started there. And it was a really moving day because no president had been able to come in that neighborhood and do a talk. Uh, uh, even the mayor itself cannot go in that neighborhood anymore. He hasn't been back in years. And uh, and there was a conversation that day. And the people reconnected. And for the first time, the president said, well, now you're part of the patrimony. This is our heritage, and you're part of it. So the people felt mirrored and represented and being part for the first time of the French culture. So it was a really moving day. So I'm doing uh, more of those murals. I've just done one in San Francisco. That would be exactly the same concept, except that it's all video. Everyone is moving within each other. That's going to be presented at SF MoMA next year. And we're doing one also in New York. And I'm happy to announce we'll be at the Brooklyn Museum next year also. So we're going to start that. standing.